if anyone's been following my work recently, I have been getting sucked somewhat into the AI rabbit hole, and I have an AI substack if you haven't found it already. I'll link it in the show notes. Um, but mostly I've just been learning and catching up on what's going on. It looks like one of those Moore's Law type of exponential improvement type things that it's going to last for a long time. And I do feel behind on it. I do feel there's potential for it. Uh, I'm not really sure how to productize it. I think there's a lot of knowledge in the infrastructure space, um, but the app space is not as clear. Anyway, I think uh, it's useful to have informed opinions, and I think it's useful to have Eric Schmidt uh, talking about them. So uh, here's a little video I found which I thought was useful to recap some of his thoughts. Eric Schmidt is a business leader and software engineer that served as Google's chief executive officer from 2001 to 2011. Under his leadership, Google grew from an early Silicon Valley startup to arguably the most important technology company on the planet. Schmidt is currently co-founder of Schmidt Futures and sits on the board of many public and private institutions. He is still involved with technology, consults with the U.S. Department of Defense, also talks about AI in his latest book, The Age of AI, and Our Human Future, written alongside former U.S. Secretary of State Henry Kissinger and computer scientist Daniel Huttenlocker. Schmidt was a guest at the Milken Global Conference, and here he anticipates some of the AI innovations that we will certainly see in five years. He also predicts what we might see in 20 years. Here are the details. Recently, in the last couple of years, there have been extraordinary gains. So, for example, a team at Google and at the Baker Lab separately uh, figured out a way to actually understand, if you take DNA, what proteins are generated and what their structure is. That's an extraordinary achievement, in my opinion, worth a Nobel Prize. Um, there are drugs being designed now that could not be possibly uh, designed by humans uh, in any way because of their complexity. Um, there's evidence that AI can be used in biology. AI is math to biology the way math is to physics. In other words, biology is so complicated that AI will be used to interpret biology and predict its outcome. Over and over again, AI will arrive in your life. Um, another example is the hottest area in my industry right now are large language models. Uh, recently, a set of startups have been funded at between 100 and a billion, 100 million and a billion dollars. Uh, they have no current product or revenue plans. Um, that's the the belief of the power of this technology. These large language models are interesting because you suck all the information in, like you read all the web, which computers can do, but we can't, and then they discover things. They appear to discover a structure of language. And an example of recent Google product last week can actually translate from one computer language to another, and we didn't give it any examples of one to translate to the other. It discovered a structure, and it can predict it. These are the beginning of general intelligence. The, the current um, excitement stems from a technology called transformers that was invented three or four years ago. And what transformers do is it can predict the next word after a set of words. So if you give it a sentence, it can predict what the word will be. And it's done using a complicated mathematical technique. It turns out predicting the next word is mathematically the same thing as predicting the next sound, the next video, the next image, um, all of that. And so you have a unification, a multimodal unification of video, text, and speech. So these systems sound and look like they're intelligent. Um, a good example is uh, GPT-3, which came out last year, which kicked the current revolution off. You asked it, um, 
do you think like a human? And it says, no, I do not, because I am a large language model, and you are a, a, a human who has been taught to think in this way. Now, is that it thinking about you, or is it pattern matching? We can't tell. And the truth is, and I'm, as part of philanthropic work, I'm funding projects to try to understand this, we don't actually understand why this works. We don't mathematically understand why it works, and we also don't understand its failure modes. So you wouldn't want to use this as a replacement for something that's life critical, because we can't say when it fails. When does it just crash? Uh, the current large language models, for example, have trouble with the notion of gravity. So if you say to them, I moved, it, I moved the object from here to here, and then I put it up here, and then I put it down there, and so forth. Now, everyone just followed what I did. The large language model gets confused because it doesn't understand gravity. So the computer scientists say, we're going to now add concepts, right? So with concepts, and then with planning, maybe you get to the point where it looks like a human-like intelligence, which has all sorts of issues. Uh, if I were 24 today, this is exactly what I'd be working on. This is where the hardest and most challenging computer science systems problems are with the greatest payoff. Mm. Um, now, remember that these systems can predict patterns, and if you can predict a pattern, you can also generate an artifact. There's a duality in these systems where they can generate things. So part of the issues that we face now is that these systems can generate speech. I'll give you an example. Within five years, the following will be true. You'll be able to take a system, um, take one of these language models, which would be infinitely expensive to make, but you didn't pay for it. Um, it shows up in your doorstep, and it fine-tunes. The technical term is literally fine-tuning it. You fine-tune it to you. Who are you? What do you care about? It sort of watches you and learns from you. It learns your voice, right? All of a sudden, it can generate videos with you in it. Now, you can think of this as a second AI, right? Now, the interesting thing is, imagine five years from now, I install this thing, and I use it for a few years, and eventually we all die, unfortunately. Well, it lives on, right? As a pretty good impersonation of me. And what happens when I'm dead, and it's still learning? Is that me? Is that an artifact of me, or is it just a stupid artifact of history that you'll keep in a box, and some future will say, oh, Eric was so stupid back then, but it's entertaining to watch him. Right? Because it didn't keep learning. We don't know. We have no way of discussing these things. This stuff is incredibly powerful. It will be the basis of enormous gains in human health, language translation, communication, summary, and education. All the things that Milken represents will be affected in an almost always positive way. Having said that, there's terrifying con consequences as well. So the first question has to do with jobs. Does this fundamentally mean there are more jobs or less jobs? Now, I've spent my whole life people saying computers will replace humans, humans won't have anything to do. So far, that narrative has been false. Notice that there's a huge surplus of jobs and not people to fill it, uh, certainly in the United States. The second one has to do with national security, something I've worked on for almost a decade now. And in, our, in, in the Kissinger book, we talk a lot about this. Um, what happens when the decision time that you have in a conflict is less than human? I'll give you an example. In the future, there's a war, and the war is North Korea attacks the U.S., the U.S. attacks back, and China says, not a good time for a war, stops the war in, in North Korea. And the entire war took five milliseconds. Now, how are we going to organize around that war? How are you going to build a system that can make all of those decisions? What are the rules? 
around automatic decision making. I just, uh, I and a team for the, working for the Congress published a recommendation that this was a disaster and that you have to have human in the loop. But, you ha but when time gets so short, another example, if there's an, uh, in, in the horrific scenario of an ICBM coming with a nuclear weapon in the 1960s, they had about a half an hour, 45 minutes, something like that, for the ICBM to get to the US. Well, during that time, they have time to figure out where the president is, wake the president up, have the president say, why are you waking me up? And they say, there's a missile coming, and you have to authorize it. And the, and the, the president goes, is this a dream? And they say, no, OK. And then eventually, he or she goes, OK, launch the retaliatory thing. Right? It's organized around human decision time. In the military, it's called an OODA loop for those of you that are, that are veterans. Um, I'll give you another example. Um, the question of social media. Social media was originally organized as linear feeds, right? Linear, uh, we saw what our friends were doing in order. And the systems, the literate, the software network, um, social media network networks, amped them up by amplifying content they thought you would want. Well, here's a formula for you. If you were an evil social media CEO, which none of you are, you would try to maximize revenue. To maximize revenue, you would maximize engagement. To maximize engagement, you would maximize outrage. Because you make more money. Mm. Now, how are we going to deal with this? And none of us are opposed to free speech. All of us believe in free speech, blah, blah, blah. We have to sort these issues. There's issue after issue. So the strategic problems that I'm describing are going to be solved by humans. The algorithms will be changed by computers. And um, Microsoft just published a, a very powerful product called Codex, which finishes your software. So you start typing right, in a normal programming language like Python, and it can actually finish it. Something like a third of the code that's coming in was written by a computer. Now, what happens when it's half? What happens when it's 60%? What happens when it's 70%? This is the beginning of this extraordinary revolution. I am sure in the next five years, you're going to see the, in, the integration of conversation and multimodality, because that's what everyone's working on. And what that means is that you'll have a digital assistant that will mark what you should do in the morning, make suggestions, give you summaries, have a sense of humor, say, this guy's an idiot, ignore him on social media. Uh, and by the way, generate your own TikTok videos so you don't have to go out there in the wild and actually get photographed doing it. It'll just generate it for you, and you can submit it. All of that's going to happen. Then we get to speculation. Today, the systems, and this is very important, do not have the ability to set their own objective function. Humans, very, very smart people, say, we want to solve this problem, or this problem, or this problem. There are many people, including myself, who believe that there's going to be a point, and this is the, the, the median of the predictions is 20 years, so I'll say 20 years which technically means May 2042, so we're clear. You have it on record. Um, that the systems will be able to set their own objective functions. Now, you sit there and you go, oh, that means the computer can start to think like a human. That's not actually what I mean. What I mean is that it will be a kind of intelligence that's not human, but feels like it's kind of human maybe. It can reason, it can think, it can make predictions, it can make choices, but not based on a biological human background. Now, how are we going to treat these things? Right? So let's say I have my opponents, right? So he's sitting here, 
and um, I don't like him, and I don't like what he's doing, and I'm fighting him in some way, I know he's human. I know he has biological limits. I know he has to sleep every day. I know he has concerns about his own mortality, has to eat. You know, the things that we all share as humanity, our shared humanity. I know the limitations of his evilness and his brilliance because we have so many examples. So now we have the computer here, which is now doing its own thing. How do I characterize its risk? What is it capable of doing? Where does it find its limits? What, how does it decide what to do? We don't even have a language to discuss how we would regulate these things. So I'll give you a, a further prediction that these computers, when they emerge, and there's going to be a huge fight to get these things because these things are so powerful, but once they emerge, they're going to be like plutonium. Uh, I visited as part of my military work where we keep the plutonium, and it's inside of a fence with guards, and then there's another set of guards with even bigger guns. And then there's a, a, a building with even more guns in it because it's so dangerous. And there'll be a small number of these because the computation required to doing what I'm describing will exceed the vast majority of most of our capabilities. But let's say there's one or two in China and maybe one in North Korea and maybe one in, or two or three in America and one in Israel and so forth. How are we gonna sort all that out? Nobody knows. We don't even have a language to talk about the emergence of a non-human human intelligence. And that's incredibly interesting and incredibly powerful. Maybe it can solve the gravity problem that Einstein couldn't solve, but also you can imagine the consequences negatively. I think the difficulty for us living in this time period is that we are living, we're living through this very fundamental technological change um, in real time. And seeing things in real time, things always look more primitive, primitive than they will turn out to be. And we have to judge whether or not to bet on them based on very limited evidence. Um, so imagine betting on the semiconductor uh, as it was just being invented. And you know some of these technologies that were invented um, didn't get popularized for 50, 70, 100 years after they were invented. So it's a good chance that being early um, is almost as good as being wrong. And uh, it's, it's, it's really hard to, to figure out like where and when this happens. But I do think it's like the natural outcome or the natural end results, um, which is that the world is rate limited on the number of available software engineers. And uh, uh, beyond that, there's also a lot of personalization and generation, right? Like if I think about models of AI, uh, there are two models, which I particularly uh, love. I think I've probably mentioned it on this podcast before because I love it so much. Um, so one, which is um, the Zuckerberg model of AI, which is AI uh, decides for you, right? We'll, we'll, we'll have the algorithm. We know what's best. Um, we'll observe your, your movements and we'll decide for you. And then the other model is kind of the Steve Jobs model, which is uh, AI as the bicycle for the mind, um, that um, whatever you want to do, we'll augment it for you and try to guess, uh, best guess um, what your goals are. So I think those are the, there's a very fundamental div division. I think that's why people are so inspired by generative AI. That's why I'm inspired by it.